1: Welcome back to Loose Ends, The Singh Family Tragedy. This is Episode 17, Impressions Count. My name is Graham Crowley. Thank you very much for listening. This podcast has been created specifically for an adult audience, so listener discretion is advised. I accept ownership of all thoughts and opinions in this podcast. After Episode 16, DNA Matters, was released, I received an email from Anna Maria Seeker. She enclosed a photograph of the Singh garage I had not seen before. Just to explain, whilst there were over 1,500 crime scene photographs taken, I could only find one photograph of the barbecue area of the garage. That photograph was taken from the driveway of the house, looking into the garage, and was quite some distance away. And only the side of the barbecue was visible in the photograph. There was something in front of the photograph, which was difficult to make out. It appeared to be maybe a clothes hanger, which really puzzled me. Why would police neglect that area of the garage and not take photographs of it? At the committal proceedings, Sam DiCarlo was thumping the table and demanding further photographs of the barbecue area of the garage. And as I understand it, that second photograph was then produced. The photograph I received from the seekers is a photograph of a photograph, if that makes sense. The item in front of the barbecue is apparently a clothes hanger. It does appear the original photograph was an official police document. The fact that that photograph exists suggests that others may as well, but I certainly have not seen them and cannot find them in the photograph dossier on file. I've posted these two photographs I have of the barbecue area taken by police on the Facebook page to help explain the situation. And to explain further, there is already a frontal photograph of the barbecue showing the garden fork behind it on the Facebook page. That photograph was taken the day the garden fork was found, some two weeks after the bodies were discovered. No photographs, I find show the barbecue area immediately after the bodies were discovered. And I wonder why that was. There are two ways to interpret these photographs of the barbecue area. The first is that it may explain why police did not find the garden fork for two weeks. Because it was behind the barbecue, which was behind the portable clothes hanger, and no one bothered to move the hanger and search the area but that's what forensic police do. The second way of looking at the photograph is that the killer had to move the clothes hanger to get to the barbecue to get to the garden fork. That points to someone just like Max Seeker, having prior knowledge it was there. If that was the case, it is clear that after replacing the garden fork behind the barbecue, Max Seeker has then moved the clothes hanger back into position. A very neat and tidy killer indeed except he didn't bother replacing the mop, as mentioned in the last episode. But I've been wondering about this. Is there a third way to interpret the photographs of the barbecue area? Was the garden fork even the murder weapon? To be honest, I have considered that as a viable alternative. Just this week, I read a diary entry by a scenes of crime officer expressing his displeasure to a senior investigator. The diary entry is dated 6 May 2003, the day the Garden Fork was located. He named the investigator, but I have chosen not to provide any names here. This is not about pointing the finger of blame, but about trying to find out what really happened. If blame was to be apportioned, it should be directed toward the commissioned officer responsible for supervising Operation Bravo Settler for taking his eye off the ball and basically for lack of supervision. These are the notes written by the scenes of Crime Officer, but not his voice.
0: I asked him on at least three occasions while I was at the scene if he wanted me to look at boxes and property in the garage, and each time he said no. I indicated that I was not happy with whoever did the original search of the garage.
1: That may also explain why the Garden Fork was not located for two weeks. But let me see if I've interpreted this comment correctly. A scenes of crime officer is refused permission to do his job, which is to search a crime scene for evidence. He offers at least three times to search the garage and is refused. Why would forensic officers be refused permission to do their job? But it gets worse. I then went through the evidence of all scenes of crime officers. None of them searched the barbecue area of the garage and the one that wanted to was denied. Besides being a serious breach of protocol, it defies logic. If these victims were your children, would you be satisfied with this outcome? And just on that subject, Vijay Singh made many complaints to police about their investigation. But the complaints centred around why they hadn't arrested Max Seeker for the murders. It seems everyone knew Max Seeker was guilty. And then it starts heading toward the unbelievable. The barbecue area of the garage ends up not being forensically examined. The murder weapon just happens to be then located in that area by a non-scenes-of-crime officer, a detective. Seriously? It probably would be believable, except there are significant problems with the evidence surrounding the Garden Fork. And yet there is more. Following the release of episode 16, I also received an email from solicitor Jeff Johnson, together with a report from an independent forensic scientist located in Sydney, New South Wales, dated 2019. Johnson had sent her crime scene photographs of the Garden Fork, She was asked to provide an analysis of the stains on the Garden Fork. The forensic scientist who wrote the report for Jeff Johnson is also a bloodstain pattern analyst. Another term for that is blood splatter analyst. She wrote this in her report. These are her words, but not her voice.
0: From the supplied photographs, the red-brown staining assumed
3: to
1: be blood appears to be in the form of transfer stains. A transfer stain is blood staining that has been deposited onto the fork through contact with a blood-bearing
0: surface. There is no evidence of impact blood staining that would be caused by strike or blow into wet blood. An impact blood stain pattern results from an object striking liquid blood.
1: That is stunning evidence and very concerning. Simply put, she is saying the blood found its way onto the fork by wiping it, not by impact with a body. There were already many questions surrounding the garden fork, and it appears Queensland police knew they were on shaky ground with the fork. It was clear police wanted forensic pathologist Alumby to be on Team QPS and be a team player rather than an independent scientific witness for the Crown. In an email dated December 2003 from a member of the investigation team, Tua Lumbee, this was written. This is being read by a voice actor.
0: 1. We are able to show that the fork is the murder weapon, with the wounds and the three sets of DNA on it confirmed. Will we have your opinion evidence to back this supposition? 2. The wombs are described as perimortem on nilma. Can you give a better likelihood that the wombs occurred after death than before? Are there any extenuating circumstances on or in the womb track that may help us with the post-death womb track?
1: That is a totally inappropriate approach by police to an independent party. The courts expect and require independent experts to remain independent. That opens the door to the defence contacting Alumbi along the lines of Our inquiries reveal the garden fork was not the murder weapon, and we are looking to you to support our position. In case you cannot recall his position at trial, Alumbi stuck with his impartiality that the wounds on Neilmah were perimortem, that is, the wounds occurred around the time of death or before, not after death as requested be his new position by Team QPS. He also stuck with his opinion that a different weapon was used to murder both Canal and City, that is, until re-examination by the prosecutor, when he agreed it was possible the fork was used. But more about that later in the episode. You may recall that in episode 9, I touched on the foot impression evidence on the carpeted stairway of the House that played such a big part in this case. Recently, I received a copy of a 39-page report prepared by a Bond University research team in respect of that foot impression evidence. It is a compelling document. That initial evidence and the results obtained by Bond University are so significant it requires further scrutiny. This is the background. Foot impressions were found in the sing house, believed to have been made by the killer. A classic example of Lockard's principle of exchange, hard at work. One impression was observed on the carpeted stairs, initially in the form of a discoloration from bleach staining the carpet. The first forensic officer to attend the Singh house on 22 April 2003 had this to say when she prepared a statement. These are her words, but not her voice.
0: On the first step of the stairs that provided access to the upper level of the house, I observed an impression on the carpet.
1: This is what another scenes of crime officer wrote from his observations that first day. These are his words, but not his voice.
0: We entered the formal lounge room, and I observed that both this room and the internal staircase were carpeted. On the first step of the staircase, I observed a disturbance on the carpet surface that was consistent in dimensions with a foot impression.
1: In respect of the foot impressions found in Neilma's bedroom, the scientific officer recorded this. These are her words... But not her voice.
0: I assisted with the application of leuco crystal violet (LCV) reagent to the blood-stained area on the floors of the upper level of the dwelling. As a result of the application of this reagent, I observed three foot impressions at the base of the bed in the bedroom, located in the northeastern corner of the dwelling.
1: That bedroom in the northeastern corner was Neilmer's. It was the Crown case that Offender Seeker had bleach-soaked socks after cleaning the ground floor tile you have previously heard about. He walked on the carpet, up the stairs, to murder the victims. Bleach soaked into the carpet in ever-diminishing amounts as he ascended the staircase. The very relevant and important facts here are that originally, Four impressions were observed in two areas of the crime scene on that first day police attended. One impression on the first step of the carpeted stairway, apparently caused by bleach. Three impressions in Neilma's bedroom, caused by the killer stepping in blood. The impressions in Neilma's room were of very poor quality and were more likely to be a shoe not a foot. And whatever happened to the evidence surrounding the impressions in Neelma's room? Well, they disappeared. That's not an accurate description, but simply they were stopped being talked about. I am not sure why. Was it because it could not be shown to be associated with Max Seeker and it was more likely a shoe than a foot impression, which did not suit the Crown narrative at all. Police focused on the one impression of a foot that may be possible to connect to the killer, and that was the impression on the bottom first step of the stairs. It was obviously a shade lighter in colour than the rest of the carpet, and friends and family had not seen that faded carpet prior to the murders, they said. The Sing House rules, you may recall, were no shoes to be worn inside the house, no smoking inside the house, no eating or drinking in the upstairs bedrooms. Included also as part of the Crown case was that Seeker obeyed the house rules by removing his shoes and only wearing socks inside. However, that position is now untenable and was in fact always untenable given that VJ's size 8 blood-covered sandals were found in Neelma's room. A cup of green tea spilt on the carpet was also found in her room. A cigarette butt found in the spa when the water was drained. As expected and as part of the investigation process, On days following the discovery of the bodies, specialist police dusted the entire inside of the house searching for fingerprint evidence. In days after the bodies were located, police covered the stairs and ground floor carpet with newspaper and plastic to keep the carpet from being damaged by chemicals during that forensic process. On 28 April, six days after the bodies were found, Police made an astounding discovery that was to prove crucial to the Crown case. There were a number of police present at the time of the discovery, including very senior police. This is what a scientific officer said in his statement. These are his words, but not his voice. At this time,
0: parts of the floor on the ground level and the stairwell were covered in newspaper in an effort to keep the carpet from being soiled by chemicals and powder. The paper had been placed on the floor at various times to attempt to keep it clean. However, due to the nature of fingerprint powder, this was extremely hard. While the investigators were being briefed on the status of the crime scene examinations, newspaper on the floor became dislodged, and it was observed that a full blackened left footprint impression was outlined in the carpet. The newspaper that had been placed on the stair carpet was also moved and revealed that there were a number of other footprint impressions on the carpet going up the stairs. These footprints appeared to be evenly spaced. They appeared to be of similar size. I formed the opinion that they were probably made by the same person. The footprints were photographed in chronological order one to nine, leaving number two out. On the evening of the twenty second of April, The first night of the crime scene examination, a bleached right footprint impression on the carpet had been located and excised from the first step. I considered this footprint would correlate with other footprints subsequently located. The bleached right footprint has been given scientific number 10, but as the impressions go up the stairs, it would be considered number 2.
1: The officer neglected to mention that plastic also covered the newspaper, a small but significant fact. The officer confirmed in -in evidence-in-chief at the trial that there was both newspaper and plastic covering the carpet. There were now some ten foot impressions that would become the basis of the foot impression evidence against Max Seeker. On the ground floor carpet, in front of the stairs, there was now a complete and detailed impression of a left footprint clearly outlined in fingerprint powder. It is important to reiterate, this impression was not visible before the 28th of April, certainly not on the day the bodies were discovered, nor the days prior to the carpet being covered with paper and plastic. Even though the impressions on the first step of the stairs was immediately obvious to all on the day the bodies were found. As well, impressions on the carpet leading up the stairs to the first floor were now visible which were not previously visible. Those nine blackened impressions on the carpet, police said, were caused by fingerprint powder attaching itself to the bleach crystals in the carpet. Bleach was only visible on one location, but it was obviously the case bleach was present in the carpet in nine other locations on the stairs, just not visible. In fact, one scenes of crime officer stated he saw other impressions further up the stairs. But this claim was neither supported by other police, photographs, nor video, and the officer made no written notes of the observation. In preparing the petition, Solicitor Johnson wrote this. These are his words, but not his voice.
2: There is no rational explanation as to why the impression of the whole footprint, Impression 1, and Impressions 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 and 9, would not have been visible at the same time as Impression 2 is observed.
1: The entire evidence surrounding this fabulous find seemed complex and confusing. I had to read the evidence several times to understand it and put it into context. Whether the evidence was complex or was just complicated by design remains to be seen. I stopped accounting after I reached 60 photographs in relation to the footprint impression evidence. Fortunately, I was able to take this complex evidence and break it down into simplistic terms suitable for this podcast. I was able to reduce the 60 plus photographs to four, which I have posted on the Facebook page to help you understand the significant discovery police made. And as you will note, I could have easily reduced them to just two photographs. I have adopted the well-used social media meme, how it started, how it ended, to explain the evidence. Those memes are usually humorous, but there is nothing funny about this case. Photographs 1 to 3 on the Facebook page depict how the story started. Photograph 4 on the Facebook page depicts how the story ended. Of those three photographs, photos 1 and 2 are of the same impression the police observed on the staircase when they initially entered the crime scene. The different perspective is to help you understand the impression as observed by police. Photograph 3 is of the clearest impression found in Neilma's room. That impression was from blood, the others on the stairs from bleach. The impression in Neilmer's room is not really relevant to this part of the dialogue, but I wanted you to see and understand the difference. Photograph 4 on the Facebook page is what the Crown was able to show to the jurors to persuade them that Max Seeker was the killer. That impression became the basis of police photographs RC-346 and RC-347. To be clear, many other photographs were shown to jurors, but these four photos tell the story like no other. How very fortunate for the Crown that the fingerprint powder attached itself the way it did to the bleach crystals and as you'll see in the how it ended photograph number four of the footprint on the ground floor carpet the fingerprint powder even attached itself to the carpet where there were no bleach crystals visible to the naked eye and not visible to the poly light and a closer examination of that photo shows such a large accumulation of fingerprint powder that the footprint is clearly visible and it can be measured rather accurately. A size 11, Max Seeker's foot size. Yet, there is only minimal powder in most other areas of that photograph. Imagine trying to persuade the jury that the How It Started photos were a good fit for Max Seeker you wouldn't get to first base. Whereas the how it ended photograph was a home run. Case solved. And how relevant was the impression evidence and what impact did it have in the trial of Max Seeker? A podiatrist travelled from Adelaide to give evidence at trial. She held a PhD in health sciences from the University of South Australia as well as a diploma of applied science from the South Australian Institute of Technology. A sergeant of police from the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the RCMP, travelled to Brisbane to undertake investigations in 2004 and returned to give evidence at trial in 2012. The Mountie was a member of the Canadian Police Forensic Identification Research Unit. Whilst he trained as a forensic crime scene examiner, and in fingerprints, he focused on developing a barefoot research program and built a database of bare and socked foot impressions. By the time he retired, he had built up a collection of 24,000 foot impressions. Both these witnesses compared the impressions found at the scene against impressions voluntarily provided by Max Seeker. They concluded that Max Seeker could not be eliminated as having made those impressions, the jury were told. It is important to clarify that. The witnesses were not purporting to provide a positive identification of Max Seeker as making the impressions because there were no unique or identifying characteristics available in the impressions left at the crime scene. But they both formed the opinion... The impressions could have been made by Max seeker or someone with matching features to Max, seeker. Max Seeker's shoe size was 11. That eliminates probably 80% of the population right there. So the jury was told the killer was someone with at least a size 11-12 foot. And there was all this other evidence placing Max Seeker in the house at the time of the murders. I was not on the jury, but that sounds pretty compelling to me. It is not my intention to explore that comparison evidence today by those two expert witnesses, and I will explain why later in this episode. So how did those impressions suddenly become visible? At trial, the Crown case was that due to the house being dusted for fingerprints, large amounts of fingerprint powder floating around in the air in the house, found its way under paper and plastic covering the stairs and the fingerprint powder attached itself to the carpet where there were dried bleach crystals. You just heard the story about how they were discovered. Sounded legit, except for the part about the fingerprint powder finding its way under the plastic and paper. That actually didn't sound too legit at all. Sounded incredulous, actually. Or as Sam Carlo described it, miraculous. Was that even possible? I have been in crime scenes whilst fingerprinting was being undertaken. Sure, powder gets thrown around, but so does talcum powder in the bathroom. As does flour in a kitchen. The fingerprint powder can, and does, coat flooring, furniture and possessions in a light film. But I never saw fingerprint powder find its way under newspaper and plastic. And in huge amounts, in very concentrated areas. And over a very large area. Except in this case. So what happened? Jeff Johnson became involved in the case in 2018. He wanted to explore that evidence. To assure himself it was accurate. He had questions. Perhaps he was suspicious. Incredulous maybe. Specifically, Johnson wondered about fingerprint powder finding its way under plastic and paper, laying over carpet and attaching itself only to those areas where bleach crystals were present. He approached Bond University on Queensland's Gold Coast. A research team was assembled and briefed. Johnson provided the research team with photographs of the fingerprints taken at the crime scene, a roll of carpet, some plastic and newspaper a bottle of bleach, a container of black fingerprint powder, massage oil, socks and a pair of boots. Johnson wanted the researchers to replicate the conditions in the crime scene. He asked the team to conduct tests on the carpet with bleach and fingerprint powder. The team utilised a room at the university for their testing, which they kept locked and secured when not in use. The lead researcher was Associate Professor Rob. The Bond University researchers... Between them, have the following qualifications a master's degree in physiotherapy, a doctorate degree in military load carriage, a master's degree in high performance science, a PhD in exercise immunology and iron metabolism, a degree in biomechanics with an undergraduate in medicinal chemistry. One of the researchers is level three instructor and technician for the measurement of body composition through the International Society for the Advancement of Kynanthropotry, ISAK, ISAC. ISAC is the standard method of measuring foot length. The two witnesses who did give evidence at trial have no experience or training in this area. ISAC was not referred to at all in the committal proceedings or the trial. Therefore it seems to me the Bond University researchers are more qualified to give evidence in relation to foot measurements found at the scene. I recently spoke with Associate Professor Rob.
4: Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your borough purchase at borough.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at borough.com slash ACAST.
1: Good morning, Rob. Thanks for your time today. Morning, Graham. More than happy to be here. Rob, I have read your 38-page report you commissioned on behalf of Jeff Johnson. Excellent report, very comprehensive. Thank you. And the results, mate, are just, what can I say, they're stunning. Can I start by um, getting your background and the background of your fellow researchers?
3: Sure. So I served for 23 years in the Australian Regular Army. I served as an infantry soldier, then as a physical training instructor, Then as a qualified uniform physiotherapist, and I finished off my time in as a human performance officer before moving over to join Bond University and stay in the Army Reserves. And here I'm the director of the Tactical Research Unit, where our primary vision is to enhance protection performance of tactical personnel. So that's military, law enforcement, fire and rescue, and do research in that space, whether it be on movement and performance, risks of injury, down to lethality, mobility, etc. So. That's my background, so I actually lead the research unit, and we actually had two staffs specifically uh, that we brought in to assist with this research project, and one of them, uh, Lisa, has a PhD in exercise uh, immunology and iron metabolism. She teaches clinical anatomy which is really important, specifically with cadaveric specimens. And she's managed the various labs, so she's very, very good at controlling the environment that we want to do the research in, as well as her general background and her work that she's done with us before. And the other is Anna is our biomechanist. She has a PhD in running biomechanics, and she's done quite a lot of research on organic chemistry as well. But really important for Anna, she's a Level 3 uh, instructor and technician for Isaac. Now, Isaac is the International Society for Anthrop- for Advancement of Kinanthropometry. And cananthropometry is actually the study of human size, shape, portion, composition, which is really important for the biomechanical review that we put in place.
1: So you're well qualified to do the tests in this research project.
3: Sure. Although I will mention some limitations, is that none of us are forensic specialists. Basically, what we do is we follow scientific process, and then we use our different backgrounds and skill sets to interpret the information that we found.
1: Now. The scope of the uh, report, Rob, can you just tell the listeners what the the aim and the scope here was?
3: Sure. So we basically had two areas of investigation that we're asked to look at. The first one was whether uh, substances on the foot, if they were applied through a carpet, through natural movement patterns like gait, walking, whether they would appear visually to the eye uh, over a certain period of time. So that was the first uh, line of research that we explored the second line or the second tranche of the research was to actually look at the foot structure and shape and have a look at the impressions that we were provided to see if for example footprint a versus footprint b could have been done by the same person whether it's reasonable to expect that the size of the foot and the general uh, structure of the human would have been able to take two steps at the same time or cover two stairs at the same time so there was that biomechanical cananthropometric tranche and then the almost the, the chemical tranche down, down the other side.
1: Okay. We'll talk firstly about the uh, chemical side of it, if we can. Sure. Basically, to summarise, I guess, um, Jeff asked you to test bleach or putting placing socked and bare feet and boots soaked in bleach onto carpet. Would that be a fair summary?
3: Indeed. Exactly right, yes.
1: Okay. And you did this over a period of eight or nine days?
3: Yeah, so we, we had three strips of carpet that were provided. They were the exact same carpet. We divided it into three strips. One strip is what we call a control condition, where nothing happens to it. We just put it in the exact same room, the exact same environment uh, as the other two strips. On the second strip, uh, we left it uncovered uh, and exposed it to fingerprint powder. And then uh, three days later, and then the, the third strip, we did the same sort of thing, but we covered it with newspaper and plastic first, and then three days later, we applied the fingerprint powder and we walked over it so we actually had three different strips under three different controls and on each of those three different strips we had seven different conditions so the first condition was just a barefoot so you have natural oils in that on your foot so again just being barefoot and stepping on the carpet was our baseline condition the second one is we had the the barefoot wetted with bleach so the foot was actually stuck into clinical container that it was cleaned and you stepped into it and then you took your foot out of the bleach and stepped onto the carpet and then the third condition was the same sort of thing, but massage oil was applied to the foot. We then did the same thing with a socked foot. So a socked foot that was wetted with bleach and a socked foot that was wetted with massage oil. And then again, we did that with a size 11 boot. So we wetted the boot sole with bleach and then we wetted it with massage oil. And across all seven conditions, we used a natural stepping action onto the carpet across all those carpets.
1: Okay. Now, you also covered the carpet and applied fingerprint powder to the atmosphere. Can you tell us about that?
3: Sure. So after we did the the baseline conditions, we examined the carpet strips for three days, every single day at the same time, looking for any change in the carpet. We then separated out the the control strips so it would not be exposed to the fingerprint powder. But the other two were going to be the experimental conditions, which had fingerprint powder applied. One of those was direct fingerprint powder applied through aerosol dispersion. So basically, we dispersed the uh, fingerprint powder through the air and let it fall naturally onto the carpet. The other condition, however, we covered the carpet with newspaper and then plastic sheets and applied the fingerprint powder on top of that. And then what we did was we left them and we started to expose them over a period of time. Okay.
1: Can you tell us the results of all these tests?
3: Yeah. So we visually inspected them every single day and then Finally, when we went back through on day nine, we looked at all the strips again and we found nothing that was visible to the naked eye. There were no differences between any of the three conditions visible to the naked eye. We could see the black droplets, for example, of the fingerprint powder on the carpet, but there was no visible footprint that was discernible by the naked eye.
1: And there was no visible bleach fading of the carpet as well?
3: No bleach or massage oil changes to the carpet, no.
1: Do you have an idea why there was no bleach visible on the carpet?
3: Sure. You can't expect normally if you pour bleach onto a carpet, for example, or massage oil onto a carpet, for it to discolor the carpet. And and that would occur typically, for example, if you poured bleach uh, or you had a concentration of bleach in a liquid form applied directly to the carpet, and you let it sit there for a short period of time. However, this was applied through a medium, which was between you know, the foot and the carpet, but it. Wasn't a prolonged exposure, all it was was a single step through gate. So the foot went down, touched the carpet, and then came off. So again, you've got to think about how bleach is if you pour it directly onto a carpet, as opposed to bleach applied to a foot, the shaping of the foot, the contours of the foot, and how much of that foot actually makes contact with the carpet and for how long during a single
1: step. So there was no bleach visible to the naked eye, but there would have been bleach crystals present in the carpet. Would that be the case? That's probably an
3: accurate hypothesis, although obviously we didn't have the capability to assess that. We were just investigating through the natural eye.
1: Hmm. But the mere fact that the bleach touched the carpet would suggest that there was some sort of bleach crystals left behind.
3: Indeed, you'd expect bleach crystals, some massage oil. You'd expect even just natural chemicals that come off the foot, dead skin cells, etc.
1: That would be um, discernible to a chemist.
3: Indeed, or under special sorts of lighting. Under special sorts of lighting, probably, yes.
1: Correct, yeah. Now, are you aware that the carpet in the Singh house, there was a visible footprint?
3: We were shown, and that became part of the second part of the analysis, that there were footprints, yes. Hmm. But whether or not they were directly caused by bleach was unknown to us, or the medium that caused those footprints was unknown.
1: Yeah. I'm just trying to understand how... When the police first went into the house, they saw an impression on the carpet or a disturbance, which they concluded was bleach. And yet your tests, you haven't been able to replicate a visible uh,
4: disturbance.
1: Uh, there's a Look, there's a variety of different reasons. We used a standard household
3: bleach. There could have been some other chemical product that we, we didn't know that was mixed in with the bleach that was there. There could have been some other chemicals that were involved. We weren't there at... The, the scene and we didn't conduct the investigation obviously so there are some other reasons why this could occur it may simply have been that it wasn't bleached that the the subject may have stood on it in place for a long period of time so there could have been a longer contact time as opposed to a step through gate true Um, so there are a variety of different confounding variables that could have occurred then that we don't know about or weren't able to account for
1: And the carpet that you tested wasn't exactly the same carpet as was in the Singh house. I wonder if that had an impact on it.
3: Definitely. A variety of different carpets have a variety of different fabrics. Uh, Different lengths and piles of the carpet can absorb the crystals differently. Mm. Um, However, again, I think that the biggest thing here was the natural application of the bleach to the foot, the way we did it. So you basically stepped into a bucket of bleach, stepped out, and then just took a single normal uh, step onto the carpet and off. So, again, the speed that the step occurs and the amount of time for saturation of the carpet would have been very limited.
1: Hmm. Now, if we can just go to the results. After you did that, Jeff Johnson asked you to do further tests, didn't he?
3: Indeed. He asked us to do a bunch of postdoc results. He was just curious, and I guess, you know, scientific curiosity, we were curious as well. What would happen if we repeated those accidents after fingerprint powder was applied? So the fingerprint powder was now on the carpet, so we put that over the control carpet, then you know stuck the foot in bleach and in massage oil and stepped on the carpet. So the difference now was that there was already a medium of a fingerprint powder on the carpet when we stepped onto it, and literally within seconds, both of those conditions yielded visible impacts to the carpet. So when we stepped through on the bleach, you could see it faintly, but almost immediately, you could see the impression of a foot. When we did it in the oil condition it was a lot more pronounced.
1: So what you're saying is when you remove the plastic and the paper from the carpet after spreading fingerprint powder in the atmosphere, there was no footprint. No. And there was was there evidence of fingerprint powder on the carpet?
3: Very little. We're on our hands and knees having a look. You could see a few little black specks here, uh, here and there, but it was nowhere near as evident, obviously, as the, the one that had the direct exposure.
1: But when you placed fingerprint powder on the carpet and then stepped on it with bleach on your foot or on the sock, yep. it produced an impression.
3: Almost immediately. Almost immediately, there was a faint impression, which became more pronounced over time, but the one with the massage oil in, in particular was... There was an immediate shape. You could even start to see the grooves of the actual boot, the splaying of the toes almost immediately. Both those conditions, when applied with fingerprint powder as the medium between, left impressions instantly.
1: Are you aware that your results are completely at odds with the police scientific officer results?
3: I'm aware there were some differences. To be honest, look, again... We've got to think about the contextual situation. We we're in a controlled lab in a controlled environment. We weren't in an environment where there was concurrent other activities going on because obviously there was a, there was a full investigation being done and they were trying to get as much information as possible. So we were in a, we were lucky enough to be in a very sterile controlled environment, which meant there were a lot of confounding variables we were able to mitigate. Whereas. In that situation being a live situation when they were running it, there would have been a lot of confounding variables added. you'd never know what other chemicals that you could have people smoking going in and out and a variety of different other airborne contaminants having an effect that we didn't have to worry about okay
1: but certainly it's the case that your results are completely different to the police results yes with all the variants aside okay can we move on to the to the next stage of the uh, research that you conducted as i understand it after you completed those research jeff johnson asked you to then examine the actual footprints is that the case
3: oh we were actually asked to do both at the same time so we had them going as two separate lines of inquiry we separated out the lines of inquiry based on our skill sets and what using time efficiently i guess while we're waiting for the carpets to show any factors we were actually able, able to go in and conduct the analysis of the footprints
1: okay can we talk about that please
3: sure so we were provided a a series of photographs of different types of footprints Uh, some of them were scaled some weren't some were very clear some weren't some actually had other markers that we were able to use as reference points whereas some didn't so there were a whole variety of different photographs and from that uh, Anna was able to use one of the Photographs in particular, which was very, very clear, had clear articulations on the foot itself and actually had a scale already that was put down by whoever took the photograph. And luckily enough, it actually included the entire width of the step. So she could then actually measure and account for the the dimensions of the, the stair as well that the footprint came on. And then using that as a baseline, she was able to go through and start to investigate the different footprints and trying to determine whether or not they belong to the same person whether there was some variation in movement the approximate nature of gait we're trying to look at whether they're walking running sprinting etc whether they're rotating on in place so from those footprints we try to look at the kinematic metrics and then we try to look at what it would be whether or not the same footprint came from the same person whether they're walking running etc
1: okay can we talk about what I call the first impression or the, the impression on the ground floor before the steps? Do you know the one I'm talking about?
3: If you have the RC number, I do, but. Yep. Oh. RC
1: 347. 347, yes. Or 340, and 346, actually. On page 26 and 27 of your report.
3: Sure. Yes. Oh, those ones, yes. Okay.
1: That is a spectacular impression, in my opinion.
3: In it is. In terms of,
1: it shows everything about the offender.
3: Uh and yeah, there was, there was a, again, that was a really nice photograph because it was well scaled. Yeah. So the, the photo had good scaling to it. There may have been some of what we call parallax error, which is based on the angle of the eye, the way you look at something. It actually makes it distend. But because it did have such a good scale, it allowed some good baseline measures. And when Anna actually ran the the footprint, what we know about cananthropometrics based on the shape and size of the foot, she did literally conclude that Based on that footprint itself, it does fit with the narrative of somebody who wears approximately size 11 or 12 footwear, did match the subject's uh, shoe size.
1: The person of interest.
3: The person of interest. (laughs) I don't know the legal term, so I'm just going with a a more (laughs) academic one, which is the subject or participant. I don't think he participated, so we'll call him the subject.
1: Uh, Actually, he did. He volunteered (laughs) all his um, footprint impressions Fantastic for the police to compare them. On page 27 it says that the length toe to heel was 274 millimetres and I noted that at the end you said that there was up to a 15 millimetre error but would there be any error at all in that photograph, in that
3: measurement? There'd probably be a lot less in that because again some of the factors that we hypothesised to have caused error, like parallax error, like a lack of actual um, scaling, weren't present in that photo. So we'd say that one is probably pretty close to what we'd expect to see, as much due to scientific diligence as possible.
1: Yeah. That, that, to me, is a real gotcha footprint, that one. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yes. And as we said, that, that exact gotcha footprint matched what we'd expect from the subject.
1: Yeah, sure. Can we talk about some of the other impressions that you studied and sure. the results that you you came to?
3: Sure. So we did find that in some of the other impressions, the the width of the foot was narrower than we'd expect from our baseline, which was the the one that we used as the determinant variable, which had the most information as the clearest picture, which was uh, RC347. And again, noting there is some variation, this foot definitely looked a little bit more narrow than you'd expect. There were some impressions where the toes were more clearly visible and others that we'd expect them to be visible and they weren't. So again, we then started to question whether or not the person was barefoot or wearing shoes or some some form of foot covering, and likewise, because of the angle of some of the footprints, particularly I can't remember the, the actual one off the top of my head. I think it was three six four. They didn't actually show distinct toes, and it looked like the forefoot was actually rotating, like they were pivoting and turning.
1: <laughs> yes, it so does.
3: It then raises, you know, the, the footprint may have actually been made by somebody landing, turning, twisting, or you know, reacting to another sound. So again, it shows a variation in the movement pattern, which isn't directly linear in in relationship, like somebody running in a straight line, like we did find for running up the stairs. Mm. So uh, footprint was consistent with somebody taking stairs two at a time, accelerating up a pair of
1: stairs. Sure. So you were able to conclude that, in your opinion, there was more than one person involved in this, weren't you? It looked like there was
3: more than one set of footprints. Definitely, yeah. They were the, the footprints are more likely to have come from at least two people.
1: And there was a significant, uh variation in the size of some of the footprints too, wasn't there?
3: There was the again the limitation however is on how we're determining those footprints. Again because we're not actually looking at the footprint, we're looking at the impression left of the footprint. Sure. So there could be some blurring or Anna noticed mentioned this in the limitations, the the blurring of the lines then looking at a photograph and trying to determine the exact measures does allow for some degree of error, although it is relatively minor, but again, it does look like at least two different size feet. But if you notice, for example, walking on hard sand versus walking on wet sand, your footprint actually appears bigger walking on the wet sand because you displace more, because you sink further in. So there are those variations.
1: Yeah, sure. Okay. I'd like to take you to the footprint in the upstairs bedroom. I'll see if I can find the number for you page twenty five r c one ninety three yep now, sure, would it be accurate to say that you concluded this was more likely to be the toe of a shoe rather than a footprint?
3: Yes indeed again, if you look at the the pressure pattern that's displayed and that the lack of any contours of the foot, it does seem to be that if that impression was a footprint, it was from more likely to be somebody wearing uh, something and covering their foot like a shoe.
1: Mm. Yes, correct. If it was a footprint or if it was made by a foot, it was, it was wearing a shoe. There were three impressions in that room and, and that is the best one. I can just take you to page 38 of your report, the conclusions.
3: I like the way you know all our pages. That's fantastic.
1: Then, <laughs> <laughs> yep. Which we have basically covered during our chat, but if we can just sure. sort of summarize it now, if you could just reiterate, I guess, what your research found in relation to this whole exercise, if you wouldn't mind.
3: Sure. So basically there were some, consistencies in terms of some of the footprints definitely did indicate one person taking stairs two at a time for example which based on the size of the foot would be mechanically possible for that individual the length of the footprint on several of the pictures like the m67 rc343 were consistent with that of the subject however there were also some footprints that the foot looked like it was narrower than those of baseline or reference ones of the subject and likewise Some of the footprints we think were more likely to have been barefoot, whereas others were more likely to have had some form of foot covering on them. Hmm.
1: I think we're done. (laughs) Yeah. All right, Rob. I appreciate your time once again. You're more than welcome. I'll let you get back to enjoying your Saturday. Indeed. (laughs) All right. Nice talking
3: to you. Thank you. Take care.
1: I pondered why the bleach on the carpet in the sing house was visible, yet when the research team applied bleach to the test carpet, the bleach was not visible. I found the answer in a note in the police file. Inquiries with the supplier of the carpet for the sing house revealed there are two types of carpet. One is space-dyed fibres, meaning the coloured dye is added to the outside of the nylon fibres only. The second is solution dyed fibres, where the dye penetrates the whole fibre. The space dyed fibres, or the first one, are susceptible to fading by bleach and other substances. The solution dyed fibres, the second one, are not. It was the first type of carpet that was installed in the Singh house. It would appear Jeff Johnson purchased the solution dyed fibre carpet, or the second one, for his tests with Bond University. Would the researchers have obtained a different result if they had used a space-dyed fibre carpet, the same as installed in the sing house? Debatable, but in my opinion, not likely. Bleach was present in the carpet in both the sing house and at the university, you just couldn't see it. So the researchers were really testing like for like. But that's a matter for solicitors to argue about. I summarise the results obtained from the Bonn University tests conducted this way. When a strip of carpet was covered with newspaper and plastic and fingerprint powder distributed in the air, no discernible footprints appeared on the carpet. A strip of carpet was then left uncovered and exposed to the fingerprint powder disseminated by air and no footprints appeared. That is... No fingerprint powder accumulated on the area where the bleached sock or boot had been applied. So, even leaving the carpet uncovered with bleached crystals present on the carpet, no impressions became visible. However, as found by Bond University, when fingerprint powder was placed on the carpet first, followed by a bleached or oiled sock or boot on the carpet, discernible prints appeared almost immediately. Bond University results are exactly opposite to what the police claim occurred in the Singh house. Tests occurred in a laboratory situation with the circumstances replicated as close as possible to the crime scene gave results which are completely at odds to the results given in evidence at the trial. Stunning and disturbing. Following those tests... The team conducted photographic footprint analysis. They analysed all impressions, including taking measurements, using the ISAC standard for foot measurements. Max Seeker has a foot length of approximately 280 millimeters, size 11. The researchers concluded impression number 1 was 274 millimeters in length, size 10.5, but they did add there was a possibility of error. So Impression 1 may be consistent with the shoe size of Max Seeker. They concluded the impression on the stairs, the how it started photograph, may be a similar size to Impression 1. Other impressions they measured were of various lengths, from 229 millimeters, a size 5, upward, with the biggest impression being 280 millimeters, as seen in Impression 1. The report by the Bond University team concluded that the impressions were more likely made by more than one foot. To quote, There are a collection of prints from different people present. They concluded the impression in Neelma's room was possibly the pointed toe of a shoe. So was bleach even present on the carpet? On discovery of the bodies, forensic police used a frizzy light on the carpet and carpeted stairs of the house and found no further evidence of bleach. I'm not sure what a frizzy light is, but suspect it may be a poly light, which is a portable, high-intensity light source used to detect substances not visible to the naked eye. An Australian invention, coincidentally, which changed the face of modern-day policing. To be clear, the poly light found no disturbances on the carpet indicative of bleach being present in the carpet and no bleach was found upstairs. A forensic chemist was provided with samples of impressions numbered 2 through to 9. He confirmed bleach was present on each sample tested. So why didn't the polylight detect the disturbance in the carpet? The chemist was not provided with impression number 1 known as photograph 4. The it Ended photograph. The most spectacular foot impression. The gotcha foot impression. Why not? Don't know. The chemist was asked if bleach was present in that piece of carpet. This was his reply. These are his words, but not his voice. I have never set
2: eyes on that item.
1: In cross-examination and in reference to Impression 1 photograph four, he gave this rather disconcerting reply.
2: I have never been allowed near
1: foot impression one. Later tests of Max Seeker's clothes, socks, shoes and cars returned no bleach present. Jeff Johnson sought and obtained permission from the coroner to speak with the now retired government chemist who undertook the carpet examinations. Queensland Health refused to put him in touch with the chemist. The result of all this is that the carpet, which revealed the most spectacular foot sample, showed no visible signs of bleach, did not react to the polylight, and was not sent to the lab for testing by the chemist. Another variation from protocol. And the chemist also did not find any bleach present in any other samples from the house. Upon receipt of the Bond University report, And whilst preparing the petition for pardon in his supporting affidavit, Jeff Johnson wrote this
2: This would suggest that the footprints that appeared on the 28th of April 2003 are more likely to have appeared as a result of a person or persons unknown having stepped on the carpet after fingerprint powder had been applied in areas of the crime scene.
1: The only conclusion I can reach after reading and digesting. The Bond University report is that someone interfered with the crime scene after the bodies were found and that there were likely at least two killers, one wearing socks and one wearing shoes. Jeff Johnson was careful not to suggest police fabricated evidence. He said
2: person or persons unknown having stepped on the carpet after fingerprint powder had been applied in areas of the crime scene.
1: However, I will be blunt. The crime scene was under 24-7 police guard during that period. No one other than police and authorised personnel were allowed to enter the premises. Who else would have had an opportunity to apply fingerprint powder to the carpet? What is the implication of this evidence? Apart from planting evidence, perverting the course of justice and perjury, you mean? The Bonn Uni report concluded more than one person made the impressions on the stairs. So was there a conspiracy to pervert the course of justice as well? And more tellingly, Bon University results in relation to the impressions found in Neelma's room suggested a shoe rather than a foot impression so more than one offender involved there was never ever a suggestion maxika had an accomplice and no evidence came out implicating any of maxika's associates if these murders did not have the name maxika involved the mainstream media would be all over this story as you've heard There is not a journalist in the country who wants to touch this story, just as there were no law firms willing to take on the defence. I do not even think old mate Hedley Thomas would be keen to dip his toe in the water here, but I will speak with him. Throughout this podcast and at various times you have heard me say that evidence, if correct, does not prove Max Seeker did not murder the victims. And I'll say it again, what you have heard in this episode just now also does not prove Seeker did not commit these murders. But if you accept what the Bond University research team found is accurate, and for the record, I accept it without reservation, it shows there are serious concerns regarding the evidence in this case. Serious concerns that raise the allegations of impropriety, and possibly fabrication of evidence. The researchers' results suggest to me there has been a miscarriage of justice in this case, and Seeker's convictions for the murders is unsafe. And why do I accept the evidence of Bond University over the police scientific officers? Because Bond University have science on their side, and logic, and most importantly, common sense. I look forward to the day a police scientific officer tries to rationally explain how fingerprint powder attached itself to bleach crystals in carpet, as described in their court evidence in the Singh murders, even given the limitations of the Bonn University report. Now you understand why I didn't bother examining the evidence of the comparisons of the impressions found at the scene against Max Seeker's foot impressions. If you accept the Bond report, the comparison evidence is not relevant. On the results, it was not Max Seeker's impressions that were numbered one, three, four, right through to 9 on the carpet in the Singh household. Scientifically impossible. So whose foot made those impressions? I don't know but I don't believe they are made by the killer. That's right, I don't believe they are made by the killer. Was it Max Seeker's foot impression on the first step of the stairs, impression two? You know, the one and only impression ever seen by police, as depicted in the How It Started photographs. We will never know if he made that impression or not, because on the research results, the evidence has been so corrupted, so poisoned, There is not a judge on the planet who would let it go to the jury in its current format. And the really, really scary thing here? All this business with the foot impressions occurred within six days of the bodies being found. And the business with the garden fork occurred within two weeks of the bodies being found. The only conclusion I can draw is that the police investigation was always about Max Seeker and from that point on seeker was on a slippery slope on the highway to hell he just didn't know it and if a rogue officer or officers fabricated the foot impression evidence is it such a stretch to suggest the same rogue officers planted evidence on the garden fork blood staining that just does not fit the evidence There is no one defining part of the garden fork evidence you heard in episode 16 and now in this episode from which you can categorically conclude the garden fork evidence was tampered with. But when you join all the dots together, that is the only safe conclusion. If you reject completely the suggestion that an officer interfered with the evidence, I also look forward to your rational explanation of all the loose ends in the evidence. I sit here and attempt to explain the garden fork evidence and the foot impression evidence in a calm, logical, rational and where necessary scientific manner and fail. And that is without even starting on the other many loose ends in this case. I have seen a growing number of loose ends with this case but nothing to compare with the garden fork evidence and now the foot impression evidence. Impressions really do count. From the Bond report, and now the evidence surrounding the Garden Fork, it is easy to reach the conclusion there should be at the very minimum an independent investigation of this whole investigation. If there were to be an investigation, what form would it take? A judicial review? A coronial inquiry would be the preferred option. God forbid not a farcical police review has occurred in the Leanne Holland murder. You have to ask yourself, what price justice? But it is my position the Queensland Government will not entertain a review of this case under any circumstances, ever. You may recall that the Attorney General refused to refer the petition for pardon to the Court of Appeal. This is one of Queensland's worst mass murders. It was the biggest and longest investigation ever conducted by Queensland Police. It was Queensland's longest and most costly court case. If you were a politician and in government, you really wouldn't want material suggesting police fabricated evidence during their investigation of a triple murder case going to an appeal court, would you? Notwithstanding, I have written to the Attorney-General to alert her to the problems with the case, and the need for a judicial review. I have requested an interview for the podcast. I will let you know the outcome of that in due course, but I do not hold out hope. I am reminded of some of the exchange I had with Sam Carlo in episode 14. Can we discuss the evidence of the footprints found in the fingerprint powder going from the ground floor up to the first floor? which was very significant evidence for the Crown, as you know.
4: Yes. How on earth did they discover these footprints so many days after the event? Allegedly, two or three of the bosses decided that they wanted to see the place before they released it. And one or two of the bosses were standing on the carpet or the the paper, and allegedly, during their movements, they tore the paper Somehow it went to the carpet and miraculously this print appeared. And this, much like the pitchfork being found some 10 or 12 days after the event by a non expert, is another feature that will always astound me.
1: I must admit, I've spent a lot of time thinking about the fingerprint powder sneaking its way under the paper and the plastic, and also the amount of time it took to find that pitchfork.
4: Think about what you're saying. There's a strange discovery of a pitchfork that was allegedly the weapon. There's a strange discovery of the footprints, and there's a strange discovery of the fingerprint powder getting underneath and creating this. Are they strange, or is there a basis for it? a basis in truth.
1: That's it for Impressions Count. Thank you for joining me in this latest episode of Loose Ends. I will leave you with these comments by Sam DiCarlo when I asked him whether he believed Max Seeker committed these murders.
4: Well, My answer to that is simply this. I don't know whether he's guilty or not, but in my view, that's not a case that, will ever be answered because of the conduct of the case by the police.
1: Please join me in the next episode where I speak with Shiv Seeker, wife of Max Seeker, who has some interesting insights into this mass murderer. If you follow the podcast, you will be advised when a further episode is released. Please rate and review the podcast. It does help spread the story. If you like the podcast, recommend it to others. If you have questions, information or feedback, you can contact me via the following. The Facebook page is Loose Ends, the Singh Family Tragedy. My email address is looseends2003 at outlook.com. This podcast was made possible with the grateful assistance of the ACAST Creator Network. Music Before I Go by RKVC. You'll find all my contact details in the show notes at the end of each episode. Thanks again for listening.
3: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.